And so we decided we wanted to really work with the endurance community. Had no idea what that meant, but we put these focus groups together with trail runners and triathletes and mountain bikers and mountaineers and kayakers and just hikers and rock climbers, every kind of um, endurance athlete we could think of and asked them questions about how they spent their time and how they spent their money, how they found their training partners and their gear. And we were just like really looking for a problem to solve and, uh, you know, essentially a business we could build. And the common thread that we heard for all of the sports and no matter what the competitive levels were of these athletes was they all had a critical need to find healthcare providers who understood them as athletes. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Courtney Jacobson. Courtney is a passionate endurance athlete, product management veteran of the tech industry, and entrepreneur. Currently, she is the senior director of product management at Aduro, a human performance company that utilizes a combination of one-on-one coaching and technology to improve the lives of their corporate clients. She's also the co-founder of Gritlink, a platform that connects endurance and adventure enthusiasts with healthcare providers who are experts in working with athletes. Prior to Aduro and Gritlink, Corny spent many years working as a product manager at companies like Amazon and Disney. As her passion as an endurance athlete grew during these years, so did her mission to help people live happier and healthier lives. As a result, while at Amazon, she launched a coaching business, which she ran for about six years, focused on helping senior level business executives prepare for endurance events. In this interview, we get into her initial background as a classical pianist, her career in product management, her passion for endurance athletics, and her current roles at Aduro and Gritlink. And so, without further ado, my interview with Courtney Jacobson. Courtney, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me. So let's start at the beginning here. Uh, Where did you grow up? So I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up uh, upstate New York, small town called Saratoga Springs. Oh, sure. You have um, a pretty well-known like horse. Horse races. Horse racing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Every August. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I've been meaning to go up there. I've heard just wonderful things about the area. It's a really, really nice little town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... Was an active and healthy lifestyle something that was like encouraged by your family while growing up? Um, very much a um, eat your vegetables kind of household. Um, and as far as being active, not so much. We were a music family um, and a, an education family. So mm-hmm. we were definitely not a sports family. There wasn't a lot of like, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of family activities I guess, but um, it, much more focus on like education and, and arts and music and that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. 
so were both of your parents like artists and or musicians? Yeah, my dad was a band director and uh, my mom was a classical guitarist, but she was also an elementary school teacher. Um, yeah, and I, I played a lot of sports and I was like participated in sports when I was growing up, but I was like very much not good at any of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I did figure skating and gymnastics and I was on the softball team and swim team and I played volleyball. Um, but yeah, like definitively not, not good at them. I remember like really hating getting in the water for swim team. Um, figure skating was, I probably did figure skating for the longest of any of them. And I was competitive, but you know, I, I say I wasn't good at it. And a lot of times when I say that people say, oh, you're just being hard on yourself, but it is definitive that I was not good at it. I <laughs> come in like 11th out of 12th at competitions or 12 out of 12, or, you know, I was, it wasn't my, <laughs> it wasn't my forte. <laughs> yeah. I, even I guess even with that, was there like any of them that you really enjoyed, even though you might not have been, I guess, the best at it? Um, I remember enjoying more of like the social aspect of it, but right. Um, and I enjoyed moving, like I enjoyed moving my body, but I again, like I think I was just it just wasn't really part of my paradigm when I was growing up to like be be in sports and to be active. And um, so I think I was just doing it to become like that well-rounded person really was, was kind of what it was about. Right. Yeah. Right. And so your instrument of choice growing up was the piano, right? Yes. Yeah. I started playing piano when I was four and that was like very much driven by having a music teacher as a father Right. Um, my sister started playing violin like around the same age. Um, and then as I grew up, I, you know, it was easy. Once you play piano, um, I don't know if you play any instruments, but once you play piano, you can pick up other instruments fairly easy. So um, it was a good foundational instrument, but it was very like it was it was the focus of most of my growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And why do you think that is um, like piano specifically, if you start out with that, that it makes it easier to pick up other instruments is like the complexity of it. What do you, what do you think it is? Um, well, like there's some very like technical pieces to it. So when you learn how to read music, there's, um, you know, different ways of reading what's like called the treble clef and the bass clef and different instruments use different either the treble clef or the bass clef so when you're playing piano sorry i don't know how much you know about reading music and that sort of thing but yeah, when yeah you're no, playing... I, I played i used to play piano a little bit so oh cool okay yeah so um yeah so when you play other instruments um a lot of times like most of the time you're only reading one of those you're only reading treble or bass and so the fact that you grow up learning both it's like reading two you know, two different languages or learning how to play two languages. And so that translates easily to a lot of other instruments. And then I always found it um, having the visual of the piano keyboard just was kind of like my context for every instrument I ever played. Whenever I, you know, sing or, you know, I played oboe and flute and tuba and it doesn't matter what I was playing. I just was visualizing the piano 
I see. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So how often would, would you be uh, practicing each day? Um, you know, I think it was pretty normal to practice for a half hour to an hour every day. It wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't ever the type of kid that would, I remember like later in my life meeting really, really, really excellent musicians and, you know, hearing about how they would spend, you know, eight hours on a Saturday playing. And I never was that quite that obsessed, but I remember pretty vividly having, you know, my mom telling me I have to practice and she would set the timer for a half an hour. So like half hour was minimum. And then if I was enjoying myself, I'd, I'd play for about an hour, but yeah, it was, it was every day. I had to play Mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. Yeah. So you must've enjoyed it like somewhat, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did enjoy it. It was definitely one of the few ways I felt I could express myself. And, um, and I started, you know, I was really focused on classical piano and playing classical music is a lot about precision and being perfect. And, um, and there's not a lot of room in classical piano to be kind of eccentric and, you know, express yourself in different ways. And I used music as a way to like start writing music and, and in that way, then I could express myself. So it was definitely a, a place where I got a lot of grounding and, um, right. and I did enjoy it. Yeah. Right. And so was your goal to like become a professional pianist? Oh my God, no, never, <laughs> <laughs> never. I, I actually was really, really scared to play for people. I had stage fright in a pretty big way. Um, so being a professional pianist was not on the radar, but I always wanted to be better. Like I always wanted to just be the best I could be. Right, right. And so like, as you get into high school and college, like, was your focus then still piano or was it then like starting to shift a little bit to athletics? Um, still not quite getting to the athletics <laughs> in high school, but um, my focus was shifting more towards math and science. So okay. I really, um, so like, I think in that time, I always describe myself as like having this right brain right brain, left brain struggle. And I think that really started in high school because I obviously grew up with this piano background, very kind of arts focused. Um, And then, but I always took a very disciplined approach to it. And so I think in high school, when I started advancing in, in school, I really enjoyed math and science. And, um, and so then as I grew through high school, and I thought about, you know, what I wanted to go to college for, that was, I found this program that was called Music Engineering Technology in the University of Miami, and it perfectly combined my love of music and, and engineering. And the program was really about, like, people who graduated from the program went into, like, forensic audio or acoustic design or professional audio design, it wasn't so much about like recording, like the recording studio. Um, and so I, I really liked that piece of it. Like the recording studio piece sounded like a whole lot of fun. And that ended up being what I liked most about that program. But I liked having kind of the, the serious focus on like 
an actual, I guess I'll say like an actual career, not just, not just being a musician or right. getting into rock and roll, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. No. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And so as you look back, what are your biggest takeaways from your time as a like classically trained pianist? Oh, so much. Like, I think I, I mentioned the discipline, like having mm-hmm. a discipline of practicing every day was really important. And I mean, the perseverance. So, you know, it could come down to something very tactical, like, you know, I can't get one measure right. And just persevering and trying to like repeat that measure over and over. Or it could have been like, you know, trying to learn how to play a piece of music, but just kind of persevering and and trying to create something. I think there was also a lot of like training in my classical piano upbringing about disappointment and rejection and embarrassment because like like I said I was not a performer and by the time I got to high school the people who were really coming out as real performers were like true talents like I never really consider that I had true talent I just worked really hard at it um and and by the time you got to a certain level you start to see who the real like the really talented people were and so I I felt a little bit of like the embarrassment of not, not being one of them. Um, and, and I guess that's another lesson too, is just the importance of hard work over talent. Like that was, and, right. and that happened to me in my education too. It was like, I was somebody who had to just work really, really, really hard just to get, you know, a B or like even harder to get an A. And I would watch other people around me who were just, you know, seemingly having a lot more fun and getting A's without a problem. And so, <laughs> yeah, I think that hard work was really instilled in me partially by my, my, uh, my classical piano background. Right. And was that just like kind of generally a value that was instilled in you overall, like from your parents and from your like family and upbringing? Yeah, definitely. That was a, that was, um, you know, my parents never, they were not the type of parents to say like, you know, you can, you can be anything you want to be, Courtney, just, you know, express yourself and you can find a career that you'll love. It was always about like, this is about working hard. School is about working hard and about getting good grades and, you know, going to a good school and having a good career. And yeah, there was always like that, that sort of drive to, you know, to just, to, to be serious, I guess, like be a hard worker. Right. Right. And so, so when does that turning point come when you actually make the switch from focusing on piano to, to athletics? Um, So that did not come until I moved to the Pacific Northwest, which was in 1998. Um, So that was like 22 years ago. So that was after college. Um, I graduated from college and uh, moved to the Pacific Northwest because um, I had never been on the West Coast before and I just thought it would be fun to check it out. (laughs) And when I came out to the Pacific Northwest, it was obviously like this beautiful, beautiful area, very outdoorsy culture, lots of um, hiking and backpacking. And it kind of clicked for me 
that I had never really challenged myself physically before. I had spent my entire life challenging myself mentally, but never physically. And when I looked around and I started connecting with new friends and new people, I realized that the happiest people I knew were the most active. And I was like, I want to be like them. And, you know, <laughs> if, if active equals happy um, right. and happy is healthy, then like, I think that's where I started. Like, I remember buying a book um, that was a thousand hikes in the Pacific Northwest. And I said, I'm going to do every single one of these hikes. And so I started hiking a lot and um, that turned into, um, you know, it just like the distances would get longer. And then I would say, I wonder if I could run and, you know, what, could I run one mile? What would that feel like to run a mile, you know, and then a mile turns into five miles and to many more and you know how the addiction right. goes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome and so talk to me about that that progression from like the mile to like now doing like Ironmans and ultra marathons <laughs> yeah I mean I, okay so I think this is where I connect back to my classical piano upbringing and like that discipline and perseverance that I talked about and and right. the competitiveness too and I think you know as somebody who connects with the outdoors and finds that like, oh, I really do enjoy moving my body. Combine that with my discipline and my competitiveness. It's pretty inevitable that I was going to find endurance sports and mm -hmm. probably pretty inevitable I was going to find triathlon um, just because triathletes tend to be that kind of type A competitive, you know. Um, right. And so it, it was a lot like how I described, it was just, I wonder if I could run a mile. And then like, I did run a mile. And then, and you know, I think at, at some point I thought, um, okay, I'm not a very good runner, but I did it. I swam in high school. Um, I wonder if I could still swim, not sure what that would feel like, but maybe I'll try it. And I don't have a bike, but I have friends who bike. So yeah, I can't swim, bike, or run. Perfect, perfect candidate for a triathlete, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then that was kind of where I just got into it. I think, you know, I start I mentioned to a friend or something like, hey, have you ever heard of triathlon? And and so we signed up to do a sprint or an Olympic or something like that. And um and then as I as I, you know, so I did my first couple triathlons and that addiction to just wanting to go longer and see if I could challenge myself more. Um, as I got more into it and it required more of my training time, I also really connected it with my science background and started really getting, um, really studying the science of training and wanting to understand heart rate training, pace training, power training, like all the gear that's involved and how does that help you or hurt you or you know, how do you, you know, I, I guess I kind of took lessons from my electrical engineering science background and started applying it to like more of the biology and exercise science um, okay. and started seeing the way I was training as like something that was very structured. And to me, that was super exciting because as soon as you see the structure of something, then you see the levers that you can move and then you can get better and you can kind right. of mold, mold yourself into, you know, whatever it is that, that you want. Um, 
so yeah, so that was kind of like the convergence of a lot of yeah. different things for me. And like more of the pursuit of like, I think eventually once I kind of got a core concept of like how to train for these events and goals I wanted to have, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm semi I guess I'm competitive with myself when it comes to those sports. But um, when I met my husband, he was like an amazing athlete, but like somebody who would always be getting, you know, always coming in first or second in whatever race he was doing, but he didn't care. Like he just did it for the pure enjoyment. And I totally didn't understand that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so he helped me um, become less serious about it. And like the best times I've had in my athletic pursuits have been non-competitive. So like right. we did like, um, you know, two weeks of, of biking in the Alps in, in France. And it was just, uh, you know, the most amazing experience. It was hugely challenging physically, but um, there's no race and, you know, no medal at the end, just a, a gigantic meal, um, which is probably more rewarding than a race medal. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's funny how that all works out when you kind of disassociate yourself from the result or the outcome is kind of when you do your best. Yeah, totally. Yep. What has been like the hardest or most challenging endurance race you've done so far? Um, when I think about the hardest races, you know, I think of, well, I did St. George 70.3. That's one that really comes to mind because it was, oh, I made so many mistakes in my pre-race logistics. Like I didn't look at where the race was compared to the transition area. Um, and I remember spending, you know, the days leading up to it that I arrived, like just like I had to drive 45 minutes to drop off my bike and, you know, like things I wasn't planning. So I just had a ton of anxiety. I didn't plan on where I wanted to eat dinner the night before. So I had a really bad pre-race dinner. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't look at the weather. It turned out, you know, I chose that race because it was in the desert and I hate cold weather. And I said, it's not going to rain in the desert. It's going to be hot in the desert. This will be my race. And go figure, like it rained in the desert, 50 <laughs> degrees and raining in the desert the year that I did it. And I wasn't prepared like with the right nutrition, with the right clothing. Um, and that was, so that was the hardest race for me because I was so, I just kicking myself every step of the way for the you know, the terrible preparation that I did right? and how much I focused on swimming, biking, and running during that training and nothing else, nothing else. Um, so that was a really, that was a really tough one. The other, um, another like incredibly challenging race I did was the Eiger 50K in Switzerland. Now that one was a lot more fun because I wasn't, I definitely wasn't competing. Um, it was a trail run. It was like I'll say it was like my first real trail run and I was totally going off of 70.3 training, just trying to ride that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had booked that race as kind of the end. That was actually at the end of that vacation where we did two weeks of biking in the Alps. And so coming off of two weeks of hardcore biking, like let's run a 50 K I've never done a 50 K before. Um, right. And that was, that was so hard because it was, um, I think that race is 10,000 feet of elevation gain over 50K. Wow. 
Um, and my husband did the 100K, which was, you know, it was 20,000 feet over 100K. <laughs> and I just was like, okay, I got to kill some time while he's out there. Um, and I remember talking to a couple guys at the start, they were locals and they were like pointing up at the peaks in the background, like, like, that's where we're going to go. That's where we're going to run. And they're like, and they, this was their backyard, you know, they had been training in this terrain and they're like, so how much trail running do you do? And I'm like, this is my first trail run. <laughs> and they both just laughed at me and kind of shook their heads. And then I knew I was in a little bit of trouble. Um, and I had all the wrong gear, but uh, very different experience from St. George in that I just loved it. Like I, mm -hmm. I loved that challenge. I embraced every, every second of it. Yeah. And so just curious, what was like the, the dinner mistake that you made before, before St. George? Like why was, what, what was the mistake? Oh, it, it was like, I just wanted a nice, simple, you know, I, I have my little uh, ritual that I think a lot of endurance athletes do. And I just wanted my simple pasta dinner with like a small glass of wine at a quiet restaurant, you know, gather my thoughts. And it ended up being this like fast food pasta place with, and they put like tons of cheese on it. And I don't, uh, I don't yeah. eat cheese and, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. and it just didn't taste good. And so I didn't eat very much of it. And it was like, that was also when it started raining. So I was like, we're sitting outside in the rain eating this terrible pasta and it just <laughs> didn't fit the image in my head. You right. know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so shifting gears here, um, going back to, to college, what did you think you wanted to do for a career while you were in college? I didn't really know. I mean, I think at some point while I was in college, I found myself in the middle of this program, this music engineering program, which was um, an amazing program. I had so much fun. I, I think I started finding a little bit of like a leadership niche. Um, I became the studio manager for, we had two different recording studios on campus and um, I thought that was fun. So I thought, well, maybe I should own a recording studio or maybe I should like go into recording, which was exactly what I didn't want to do when I <laughs> joined that program. <laughs> um, but all of the really like hardcore digital audio, audio engineering stuff was just not really speaking to me. And so I think when I was, I started getting a picture of like, I mean, I, I, at one point I piled on a bunch of extra classes and I like made it a point to graduate early because I wanted to get out of there and like figure out what I was going to do next. And right. so um, I was pretty sure I wanted to like work for a big company. I didn't really know what that meant and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I thought that there had to be somebody who cared about my background in engineering. And um, yeah, so I think I, that was when I started getting like more interested in business and how does business work. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what ended up being your first job out of college? Um, so my first job out of college was at a company in Seattle called AEI Music. Um, actually, that was my first like full-time job. Before that, I was working as a, uh, I was helping to redesign a sound system for a church. It's pretty, pretty big church out here. And I was just spending all day doing soldering, like soldering cables, soldering patch bays. And mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, 
And my, the guy who I was working for was like, you know, you can make a lot of money doing this. And I thought, oh my God, like people do this for a living. I could never do this for a living. I mean, it was fun, but I couldn't imagine doing it for a living. And then I worked at a recording studio for a little while. And again, like I love tinkering with things and like trying to fix things. So I remember one day I was fixing, I found this piece of broken equipment in one of the studios and I pulled it out of the rack and I opened it up and I was like, had the soldering iron out and I was trying to fix it. And the studio manager walked in and he was like, you know, Courtney, if you're bored, you can vacuum. And I was just like, (laughs) I'm not going to vacuum. Here I am like fixing your stuff for free. So I left that job. And that was when I started working for AEI music. That was like a real job that had a salary and paid me. Um, And I started in, so AEI music provided original artist recordings to retail stores and restaurants. So a competitor of like the music, you know, when you you hear the elevator music version of songs, Mm -hmm. AEI was one of the first companies that was able to license the original artist recording. So we had like really cool clients, like, you know, the limited group and the gap and Abercrombie and Fitch, um, where music was very, very much a part of the brand experience. Um, And so I started in technical service there, and then I um, very quickly moved into the technology group to um, start developing some this proprietary product they were working on. Um, And it was, uh, we had this crazy idea that we were going to deliver music over the internet which just sounded insane at the time. Um, (laughs) That's how old I am, yes. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so, yeah, that was my first experience working in like true product development. Okay. Did you enjoy that first um, full-time job? I did. And, you know, I, I also, I was really, really fortunate to end up at a company like AEI because it was um, a really it was a great social experience. So not only was I like finding my niche in my, I saw a career path, like they cared about my technology background. They cared about my music background. And I was around a whole bunch of other people who were about my age. And like a lot of the friendships that I formed at that time, which is now, you know, 20 something years ago are still a lot of my close friends today. So it it really kind of, it really was foundational. And I, I did, love that company. And um, I ended up moving to Australia for a year to work for them. Um, And I just got to travel all over the world. And it was just kind of this dream, you know, dream scenario. It was a great first job to have for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And so is that where you ultimately found your, like your passion for product and product management and product development? was there? I think so. Yeah. I, I don't think I knew that that's what was happening at the time, but I was, um, you know, I worked with, it was a pretty small tech team. And so it gave me a lot of opportunity to work very closely with customers and with engineers. I had to manage the beta programs for our products that we were putting out. Um, and it was the first time I ever really got to kind of be that intermediary between the customer and what they want and our engineers and you know trying to describe for the engineers what to build and then to justify why the money sh- why the company should spend money on building that product that is you know that's like at a high level what product management is and that's what i 
that's what I was learning how to do. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so what it is, what is it about that, that you like really, um, I don't know, I guess enjoy. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> you know, we've touched on a lot of different parts of my past already. And so I think product management plays really well into that kind of, I'll say like schizophrenic kind of mentality or background, you know, I could be in a, in a day, I would be in an engineering meeting, a sales meeting, um, a marketing meeting and a finance meeting. Like it just was all over the place all the time. Um, right. You know, product management is also about problem solving and you never know what kind of problem you need to solve. Is it going to be a schedule conflict? Is it going to be a, you know, communications conflict? Is it going to be a sales challenge? You know, is it going to be an engineering challenge? You just never know, but your job as a product manager is, is solving problems. So, you know, being kind of having this job that's all about taking a look at every perspective in the business, solve the problems, and at the same time, create value for the business and create value for the customer is like the ultimate challenge. So I, yeah, I just love everything about product management. Right. Yeah. So you can never, never really see yourself doing some kind of monotonous job for a living. I don't think so. I mean, like retirement to me is basically product management for like a really awesome product, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be doing it even if like you weren't getting paid that much. It sounds like. Yeah. I do it in my life. Like I have a, a scrum. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with scrum, but scrum is a type of, um, I guess, project management that's used in, on a lot of software development teams, but I have a scrum board in my kitchen where we put house projects. So <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's just kind of ingrained with, you know, who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so walk me through when you started to now then get the, the inklings to of wanting to get into coaching. Yeah. Okay. So then there's coaching too. Um, well, okay, this goes back a little bit to when I was talking about how I started really getting into training for triathlon and wanting to understand the science behind it. And at that point, so at that point in my life, I had been 15 years in the tech industry. I had worked at a lot of different companies. It's, it was fun, but it's um, incredibly demanding. And there's a lot of competitiveness and you're traveling a lot and it's just exhausting. And I think I was starting to realize that the passions that I had for music were definitely not there anymore. And so, you know, and from that point until, you know, 15 years later, I had worked a lot of different types of companies. So I was like, music wasn't even really part of what I was doing anymore. And I was like falling in love with triathlon. And so I, um, decided when the, the last job I worked in the tech industry was at Amazon. And when I started at Amazon, I made a promise to myself that I would leave the tech industry in five years. And I had no idea what I was going to do, but I decided at that point that maybe I should start coaching or like get in, get my coaching certification because I already had, like, I already knew what it took to, I had learned so much already about how to train and 
was pretty good at like describing that to other people. And so I started coaching um, just as a fun thing to do on the side, you know, while I was, while I was working, I, I wasn't necessarily like trying to build a business or like having that lead into anything, but I right. did want to use it as a way to insert myself into the endurance industry just a little more so that, you know, I could set myself up for in five years, if I left the tech industry, you know, maybe I'd have some contacts by that point and I'd have some experience and, and like that was where, yeah. So that's where, where coaching started. Okay. And so you're working at Amazon while also, I guess, building your coaching credibility at the same time. Yeah. Experience and, and all of that. Yeah. I wasn't, I wouldn't really say, yeah, it wasn't like a business I was trying to build. It was just, yeah, it was just like, it was a hobby that I mm -hmm. was like, hopefully hoping to get, you know, more into over five years to the point where I wanted it to like overwhelm, you know, I was, I was looking for that perfect point that you hear entrepreneurs talking about where like, all of a sudden they were working two full-time jobs and they had to quit one. And like, that was <laughs> right. where I was thinking yeah. coaching was going to take me. Yeah. And did it or did it not? It did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did leave Amazon. It was four years and 11 months after I started at Amazon, I left. And, um, and that, you know, so coaching never became, I think at that time I, had an intent, obviously at that point, coaching was my only income. So after I left Amazon, um, that was all I had to like kind of hang my hat on. So I thought at that point that um, I would grow the business. Um, not really ever thinking it would be my full-time income because coaching is really, I mean, as you know, like coaching is really competitive. There's just so many coaches out there and right. Yeah. And I didn't really have, so I saw myself, if I looked at it from a product management perspective, um, you know, and I did the full competitive analysis and all that, like, I don't have an exercise science background. I don't have a PhD in, you know, exercise physiology or whatever. I'm not a former professional athlete. And that's what a lot of coaches are. And, um, you know, my background in the tech industry wasn't really like, a selling point necessarily on a website <laughs> if you're looking for a coach. So, right. um, yeah, so it, it didn't, it didn't turn into like, I also haven't, I mean, we can talk about the rest of the story, but I, you know, it also hasn't been that long since I quit Amazon. So who knows the story continues, I guess. Right. Right. And so what were you mainly coaching your clients on? Um, well, um, I did. So after leaving Amazon before, while I was working at Amazon and I was taking on new clients, it was just basically anyone who wanted to do a triathlon and I got clients through word okay. of mouth. I had worked up to like, at one point, I think I had 12 clients, which was a lot for also having a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and, but it was pretty scattered. Like, um, I can't say I, I, I had never taken any time to like define my ideal customer or anything like that. So once I left Amazon, I did that because I, I did want to get more serious about it being a business. 
Um, and I realized, like I was saying, I, you know, I'm not a former professional athlete. I don't have an exercise science background, but I realized that my competitive differentiator was all that time that I had spent in, you know, a demanding job, you know, with a lot of travel and crazy hours. And I still managed during that time to train for, you know, I did three Ironmans and like all these different, you know, endurance events. And, and um, I thought that focusing my coaching clientele on the kind of person I was when I was in corporate was like where my best competitive advantage was because I, it meant a lot to me to coach people on um, how their training fits into their whole life. So sometimes on coaching calls, I talk about swim, bike, run. Sometimes I talk about nutrition. Sometimes I talk about sleep. Sometimes I talk about work. Um, right. Sometimes I talk about family stuff or social commitments. You know, it's it, like training really works and it's really rewarding when it fits in, when it fits into your whole life. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where my focus was. And if anybody wanted to hear, <clears throat> you know, like wanted to dive really deep on the exercise science piece of it, I would just refer them out. I would refer them to a, a PT or like somebody who they needed to talk to, to dive deep on those things. But that wasn't me. Like I stopped trying to be that person, you know, stop yeah, trying yeah. to compete with that typical coach that you hear about. Right. Right. And so did you find that there, there are like a lot of like high achieving, really busy business professionals, like really successful that are also really into endurance sports? Yeah, I think there are. There's a lot of them. I mean, it's also an exciting group of people to focus on because, um, again, thinking about my corporate background, um, there's a lot of people in corporate who sit at their desk for, you know, 12 hours a day eating Cheetos and drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> and I thought if, you know, the CEOs or like the, the leaders in a group were healthy and like showing that they were leaving their desk to go for a run or whatever, then those were the best people to try to motivate um, a, a health change and like habit change for corporations as a whole. And so, yes, there, there are a lot of um, and I think endurance sports plays into that kind of type A, you know, competitive mentality of the, the CEO right. type for sure. Um, but finding those people <laughs> is a whole other challenge. I mean, then you get into like the marketing challenge of a business. Um, and so, um, yes, I believe that there's a lot of those people out there. And um, I will also say I didn't do a great job reaching them or finding them. Mm -hmm. I mean, 12 is still, still a, a great number. Did you find those people through like just to like your immediate network or? Um, yeah. 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 And when I quit Amazon and I was more directed in my approach about finding those types of people, I, I changed my marketing to be like LinkedIn type of marketing. Cause that's where my client was. It wasn't, I was like less concerned about, <clears throat> you know, the Instagram post of like a race medal because chances are, well, I just knew like my CEO type was probably more likely to spend time on LinkedIn than Instagram. Right. Um, and, and I actually did get clients through LinkedIn. 
so yes, I mean, if I was still, so I'm not, I guess I should say also, I'm not really, I'm not coaching anymore. I'm not taking on new clients okay. um, just because I have so much else going on and something had to give. Um, yeah. And that was one area that I thought, you know, I'd love to come back to this someday, like maybe in my retirement or maybe before then, who knows. Um, but I, I kind of put the brakes on that. So I stopped my I stopped my marketing. I stopped trying to find new clients. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So coaching doesn't really end up being the full-time kind of business that you might've hoped it would be. So then what led you to ultimately um, starting Gritlink? Yeah. So um, Gritlink came about because um, I, when I left Amazon, like I said, sort of, I, I was, a coach, I had clients, but I never could really put the business plan together that was going to pay for my bills. So I'm the breadwinner in my family. And like, that was something I had to really think about was like, I can't, you know, I, we're not going to survive on, you know, $1,500 a month or whatever coaching was bringing me at the time. Right. So um, I, at the same time that I left Amazon, a friend of mine from business school also left her full-time job, totally independently, like, but simultaneously. And she also had a product management background. And we both were like, what are we going to do with our lives? I have no <laughs> idea, but we just quit our tech jobs. So um, we did what any <laughs> product managers do, and we did some market research. And we started with focus groups. I reached out to my network and just found um, all the, so she's also a cyclist. She has a, an interest in endurance sports. And so we decided we wanted to really work with the endurance community. Had no idea what that meant, but we put these focus groups together with trail runners and triathletes and mountain bikers and mountaineers and kayakers and just hikers and rock climbers, every kind of um, endurance athlete we could think of and ask them questions about how they spent their time and how they spent their money, how they found their training partners and their gear. And we were just like really looking for a problem to solve and, uh, you know, essentially a business we could build. And the common thread that we heard for all of the sports and no matter what the competitive levels were of these athletes was they all had a critical need to find healthcare providers who understood them as athletes. So that, you know, typical frustration of when you go to your doctor and you say like, oh, my, you know, my knee hurts or something. And, and they're like, well, why don't you just stop running for a few months? It's like, no, <laughs> endurance oh, athletes are not yeah, going yeah. to be okay with that. Um, and the, the problem gets like a lot more complicated when you're working with athletes um, who live at altitude, um, you know, where if you go to get a, a blood test or something like your labs as an endurance athlete, especially somebody living at altitude, the normal range for that person is not within the normal range of like what you know, for, for the typical sedentary person. And so having doctors who understand what the impact is of training on an athlete's body um, is really important. And then when, so we, we heard this need with the athletes and then um, started reaching out to a bunch of healthcare providers who we knew to be athletes or we knew to work with athletes 
and found a similar need on their side. Like they really wanted to build a business with more athletes because athletes are great. You know, athletes are curious, they're motivated to get better. So they're going to do their homework. They ask a lot of questions. Um, they're great. They're fun patients to work with. And so that was where the idea of Gritlink came from, was through this, this research and finding this connection that we could make between the athletes and the providers. Okay, got it. And so maybe provide a, like a quick overview of what, of what Gritlink is today, kind of how it stands now. Yeah, yeah. So Gritlink today is a resource for endurance, um, endurance and adventure enthusiasts to connect with healthcare providers who understand their needs as athletes. So what that looks like is you go to gritlink.net and you see a directory of healthcare providers. Um, you can search for those providers based on their different uh, type and specialty. Um, so a provider type might be a dietitian, um, a PT, a chiropractor, um, an internal medicine doctor, that sort of thing. And their specialty might be like working with female athletes or, um, or you know, maybe they're feet specialists and they understand everything about foot mechanics. Um, so you can search for provider type, specialty, location, and yeah, and then you get a list of those providers who meet that criteria. And then we also have part of Gritlink is a section of the site called Gritlink University, which is um, a bunch of science-based content to um, help athletes find information about training in healthcare, to kind of like cut through the noise that you would get in typical social media where like you just kind of broadcast out to all your running friends, like, what do I do when my ankle hurts. And next thing you know, people are telling you you've got a fracture and you should get an MRI. It's like, why don't you just right. talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about? So Gritlink is meant to kind of do that. It also allows the providers to highlight their expertise and show their personality a little bit through their content. Okay. Is it, is it free to use? Like, does it cost anything? It is free to use. Yes. For both the provider and the um, and the athlete. Okay. And how do you, how do you make sure that the providers on the platform are like legit? Like what is the, what is your vetting process? Um, right now it's mostly done by referrals. So if you are referred through a provider in the network, then that's, you know, that's like the major part of the vetting process, I would say. But okay. what we're really looking for is um, not just providers who work with a lot of endurance athletes and have that expertise, but, um, you know, providers who show that they understand the athlete mindset, like, you know, they, they're not going to just necessarily like discourage the cr crazy training weeks, but, um, you know, assess those training weeks and, and like look at them objectively. We also want providers who um, have a belief in like educating their clients or their patients, you know, not just somebody who's going to like give instruction without information, but just, um, really educate the athlete on their body and how to become healthy. And then just providers who are kind of ambassadors for their profession too. Like we don't, we, we really want to encourage, um, like inclusive thinking in the sense of there is no one right answer to 
all of the problems that an athlete could have in their healthcare. And providers who are really good about articulating their point of view and then listening to other providers and incorporating different modalities is like part of the Gritlink provider culture, I would say. Okay. And are you, are you making money off the platform currently? So we don't currently make money. Um, it, we've tested a couple. Um, so just what happened was um, right at, uh, so we launched the platform in February and okay. during our beta test, which was last October through December, we did a lot of pricing surveys and our original intent was to launch the platform as a subscription service for athletes. That ended up, there was definitely, um, there was interest in that, but athletes also wanted some sort of like perks or reward system. And I wasn't interested in building, like that just changed the whole job that I would have. My job would become like a coupon site for athletes, um, you know, finding um, product companies who wanted to give discounts. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of business at all. There's a lot of them out there. It just wasn't how I wanted to spend my time. Right. Um, and so then we decided to launch the platform just to get it out there, get people start using it. And then in March, we were going to start testing um, a premium provider program where providers would pay for a listing um, and it would give them, you know, marketing analytics and, and some additional information. And then COVID hit. And um, all of these providers who we were going to start asking for money now had to shut their business. And that would have been a pretty terrible move to like call <laughs> them up and say, hey, want to give us some money now? Um, right. <laughs> so we tabled that idea. And it's um, since then has kind of mer morphed into um, a lot of different ideas. The most recent one being a site where we can sell courses or um, we're, we're kind of, we recently did a course with one of our dietitians on, uh, female athletes. So nutrition for the female athlete. And we charged for that and sort of proved to ourselves that it's, uh, we could make money doing that, but, um, still to be determined, like exactly what, like there's a lot of testing that needs to be done around that type of platform. So, right. um, yeah, so long answer, we do not currently make money, but that's the plan. Like that's the mm -hmm. plan for how we're looking to monetize. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. And since, I guess, since you kicked off this journey, what have been some of the biggest lessons about entrepreneurship that, uh, you've learned so far? Um, well, I think probably like every entrepreneur would say it takes more time and more money than you expect to grow to grow a business. So that's right. true. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that I've learned and like some more personal things to me are like choosing your company wisely. Um, my partner who I started with was a good partner for me to ideate with and, um, Ultimately, she ended up leaving Gritlink in March, and we just had very different ideas for what we wanted the company to be. Like, our visions were not connected. And so, you know, like, I guess getting into business with the right people is super important. 
I think another major lesson that I've learned is, and I'm still learning very much, still learning, is to focus. Like, I found myself at a certain point just completely going crazy because I was legitimately trying to build two businesses at once. I was trying to build my coaching business and I was trying to build Gritlink. And you really can't build two businesses at once. I mean, you can. I just, like, I couldn't do, I'm an all-in sort of person. And I was going okay. all in on both of them. And it was <laughs> uh, really, you know, kind of driving me crazy. I think another important entrepreneurial lesson I learned was just about before you get into business to really know yourself and know what you value um, and make sure that those needs and those, um, those values are being met. And like, just to explain what I meant for me personally, like I said, like I'm the main breadwinner in my family and I had saved what I thought was enough money to start a business and pay for all of our expenses. Um, but I started feeling after two years, like I, it was really, really hard for me to watch my savings go away. Mm. I was providing a lot of services for free, both in coaching and through Gritlink. And I was just not feeling valued. And that really like hurt my confidence and really clouded a lot of my judgment. Um, and so I'm not the entrepreneur who's willing to like live on the shoestring budget. We don't have an exorbitant lifestyle at all, but like, I just found my comfort level in, um, you know, in what I was willing to stretch financially. Um, and I wish I was more realistic and more honest with myself about that when I started. Right. Well, I think too, that the entrepreneurial journey and just how, how hard it is will ultimately kind of bring to light those, I don't know what you really truly value because it's so hard, you know? Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to say it. Like it, it's uh self assessing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's as much a journey of self-discovery as kind of anything. Yep. So what's, what's your ultimate vision for Gritlink? Um, my ultimate vision is, you know, I want to, <laughs> I do want to go big. Like I, I had a, I had a vision, a very early on vision for Gritlink about becoming a telemedicine company. Um, this was before COVID. And like now that telemedicine really has proven to be like, like this is where we're going to be even, you know, after COVID um, it's going to be a, a part of health tech that lives forever. So I think becoming some sort of having some sort of play into telemedicine um, and another thing that I'm really interested in is um, personalization and machine learning and to do some sort of personalized healthcare for athletes is um, another direction I'd like to, to take it. Um, and, and I also just want it to be a network where athletes and providers can connect with each other and, um, you know, like have, have that community. Right. Okay. And so um, you also recently took a job uh, or, new, or a, took a new role at Aduro. Is that how you pronounce Aduro. it? Aduro. Aduro? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I started a new role. Um, this like was a perfectly synchronous moment. Um, I mentioned my partner left Gritlink um, and, and then I was having a lot of financial stress trying to 
figure out what to do with GritLink, what to do with my coaching business. And um, Aduro had been on my radar for a few years. Um, back when I was working at Amazon, I started making a list of companies in the Seattle area in the health and wellness industry. And um, through an advisor of mine at GritLink, was connected to one of the owners, one of the founders of Aduro. And this was a couple of years ago and we um, had had a networking call and just kind of stayed in touch. And um, it turned out, you know, right at this time when all these things were happening, COVID sitting and, and all this stuff is happening with Gritlink, um, they had a new chief product officer and they were looking for someone to run their product management team. And um, so I had a, a call with the chief product officer as more of like a networking call, I guess you could say. I, I didn't really know um, what we were going to talk about, but I ended up going into that call, like sending her my resume ahead of time and thinking like, I don't know what this is going to turn into, but um, if, you know, I thought at the very least, maybe I could get a consulting gig out of it or something to like, you know, help. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, it turned out that they needed somebody full time. And I was in a spot where I was ready to try that again. And this time do it in the health and wellness industry. And um, it ended up being a, yeah, a pretty perfect move for me at this point. Yeah. Awesome. So what, what does Aduro do? Yeah, Aduro is an employee well-being company. So we provide one-on-one -on -one health coaching and, and financial coaching um, and biometric screening and wellness tracking to participants of health benefits programs that are offered through their employers. Okay. So it's okay. like, yeah, it's like a corporate wellness program, but on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> it's um okay. and the piece of it that's really unique to Aduro is the one-on-one -on -one coaching and the fact that it's like a lot of traditional corporate wellness programs are just about like go get your biometric screening and if your cholesterol is below a certain level you get extra rewards in your health benefits program and that's kind of like the old way of doing corporate wellness and Aduro takes it to another level by looking at um, not just those biometrics but um, you know, like, again, like that whole idea of assessing the whole person and, um, you know, saying like, well, maybe if somebody's having trouble losing weight, it might be because they're not sleeping or it might be because they're stressed out about finances and they need to talk to a finance coach. And so we, we offer that, that coaching to supplement, um, the biometrics, um, I shouldn't even say supplement. It's just an additional service to the biometric screening. Interesting. So it's almost like a human, human performance coaching slash consulting company for corporations and organizations. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And so what do your days look like now with running GritLink and also Aduro? So my days are pretty packed with Aduro work. Um, Gritlink work happens, you know, nights and weekends. I, you know, I had to, like, in the old days, I guess you could say, I would wake up at 4.30, I'd get my two-hour workout in, um, and I'd, you know, wow. have, get my, you know, then off to my job. And I don't do that anymore because I, 
have had a lot of like all this stress that happened over the the past year has like caused a lot of health issues and I now start my day with 30 minutes of yoga um, I might go for a run I take my dogs for a walk um, I don't do the hardcore training anymore um, I need some time off from that I'll definitely be back at it just it's not part of my life right now um, and then we have um, for Aduro we have our, our whole engineering team is in Vietnam which um, if <laughs> the the difference between Seattle time and Vietnam time is like exactly the opposite. So <laughs> there are no overlapping business hours. And so <laughs> it's very common to do early morning calls or late night calls. Okay. And so, and then also from working from home, we are working from home due to COVID. Um, you know, the entire day can just be swept up with working. So I do like make sure to have those periods during the day where I'm going for a walk or, um, right. you know, making dinner and eating dinner with my husband and like having those moments where I'm not working. Um, and then as far as Gritlink, I mean, I'll just put it out there. Like my mission right now for Gritlink is to really find a general manager or CEO type who can manage this business on a daily basis. There is so much opportunity for Gritlink. It's really, really exciting. It's just, I'm not in a spot to, um, to really deep dive on that and to put in the time and it, it takes to experiment and, and really find the path for Gritlink. So I'm, I am looking for partners and, and I would take on more, I'm looking to take on more of an advisor type of role for Gritlink. I see, okay. And so do you, do you work every day of the week? Um, I try to take Saturdays off. That is my, that's, that's the goal. Uh -huh. And I'm usually pretty good at it. So yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Got it. And so what is the, the next big athletic event or, or goal that you're, that you're working towards? Or is that, um, maybe on the back burner? Um, like you might've mentioned. It's sort of on the back burner. I, um, yeah, this could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am actually getting bunion surgery this year. And so I'm getting it in, in just a few weeks, actually. So I'm, I don't have that big event on the calendar right now because I'm going to have to go through a recovery, but, um, right. next year, um, assuming we can travel again, I'd love to do another, we're talking about doing another European bike trip. Um, oh, cool. and I would love to do another Ironman someday. Um, or I should say like long course triathlon. I don't know that I want to do an Ironman branded event again for a lot of different reasons, but, um, someday I'll get back into triathlon, but yeah, that is on the back burner. Okay. And then getting into these last few questions here, what does an ideal day in the life look like for Courtney? I had a hard time thinking about this one. Um, because it sounds pretty boring, but I guess there's nothing wrong with uh, ideal being boring. You know, I'd get up, yeah. I'd have some coffee, relaxing coffee, not coffee while I'm doing 12 different things, but just maybe sit outside and drink my coffee. I'd go for a bike ride or a run. Um, and then I'd work like I, I do enjoy my work. And so I would do some work to help whatever that looks like in the ideal world. I'd be making the world a healthier place. Um, and then I'd cook dinner. I love cooking. So I'd cook dinner and hang out with my husband and 
my, we have four animals. So uh, I'd hang out with my four animals and my husband and we enjoy life. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so with all that you've accomplished so far, um, like, have you ever burnt out? Um, I don't know if I know what burnout feels like, but I would say probably, yeah. Like when I look at some of the, you know, stress issues or health issues I've had, that's, that's probably called burnout. So yeah, I've burnt out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Maybe just not have acknowledged it or something. Yeah. I'm still in denial about it if you can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. And then as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life so far? Um, I just want to see what I'm made of. You know, I want to see like what my potential is and I want to live to that potential. Um, and I want to move the needle on wellness in the world. We live in a very unhealthy world. I mean, like literally speaking right now, but like aside from the current pandemic, we, right. we do live in a very unhealthy world and most of the disease that's out there is a hundred percent preventable. And, um, I'd like to figure out what I, you know, one person, what I could do to help move the needle on making the world a healthier place. Awesome. And lastly here, what parting words of advice um, would you like to leave the busy professional listening around maintaining an active and healthy lifestyle? I would say be honest with yourself and be humble and ask for help. Nobody can do anything by themselves and uh, know that life is going to ebb and flow and different things are going to be important to you at different points along the way. And if you just know yourself, you know your values, then you will make the right choices. Great. That's a great place to end this. Uh, Courtney, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chase. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Where can people go if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about GritLink and Aduro? Um, you can go to, to learn more about Aduro, you can go to adurolife.com. It's spelled A-D-U-R-O life.com. And to learn more about GritLink, go to gritlink.net. And we're also gritlink.hq on Instagram. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com to learn more about my coaching services and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.